You are tuned to the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. More and more visitors are touching down in the islands. This past Saturday saw uh, some 28,000 travelers arrive in the state. Lieutenant Governor Josh Green oversaw the launch of the Safe Travels program, uh, which was about five months ago. And now more people are starting to get vaccinated against the COVID-19 virus. And we're learning that the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is now being distributed. How best to manage our visitor industry and keep our cases in check? We talked to the Lieutenant Governor this morning. You know, we did our 550,000 shot yesterday, plus another 75,000 from the military. So we're almost halfway there. And it's just going to continue to accelerate. I mean, now we're getting a lot more vaccine because next week the Johnson Johnson starts pouring in. And it's just, uh, you know, it's just going to keep improving, basically. I did talk to someone from the Department of Health, and they said, yeah, they weren't expecting any vaccines this week. But we did get a shipment, apparently, I think of like 1,700 doses. So I think that's being disseminated. But yeah, and I think even on the Big Island, I think the news is that they're starting to maybe offer the vaccine to, I think, 50 and above. So It's um, amazing. Yeah, and it's funny because it, we asked the Department of Health to move to 55 to 64 effective next Monday, and we'll see. They may still do it. But the the fact is the counties where they're more rural and they have extra spaces, they're doing it of their own accord. So uh, you're, you're seeing the very natural movement of the vaccine program moving forward. And because there's so much communication now on TV and radio and Internet, it's just possible. You know, it can actually be done. So, you know, it's exciting. You, you watch. By the time we touch May 1st, and mark my words, when we are on May 1st, we will have done – uh, 900,000 shots with the state and another 100,000 with the military. We'll get a million shots delivered. And that's a ton of immunity. It won't be herd immunity, but it's a ton of immunity. And this week, you know, last week, we are starting to see the numbers of visitors bump up. The higher vaccine rates and the availability, you know, coinciding with all these tourists coming in. You know, w- what do you see? You know, we're talking about, what, a vaccination passport or some kind of record to be able to allow more visitors to come through here? I do see that. That's absolutely critical. And that's what the whole nation and the world is going to do. So surely we should lead the way if we can. What we'll, what we'll see is come May, June, July, people will be able to demonstrate they've been vaccinated and that will be sufficient for travel. It's really not that complicated. It's a better way to demonstrate safety and health than even a test, a pretest, which did work when that's all we had available to us, you know, back in October. But you know, what could be better than knowing that people are essentially immune? And we'll still tell them to wear masks. There's no question. But that's the way to go. And it's not just for travel. It's also for events. If you want to have a wedding with 300 people, you show that, that everyone's vaccinated. You make, you know, make the case. If you want to have a big event like a marathon, again, if everyone's immune, you don't have to worry about an outbreak. So as public health goes, this is the way. And what can you uh, tell us about, you know, how that might get implemented i you know we're hearing that there may be some announcement uh, from the governor's office soon yeah well we're working with a couple a couple companies and these guys what they have to do is they have to have the technology to be able to look into databases that are just showing whether or not a person's been vaccinated and match that with their identifiers like their name and birth date and what sounds pretty simple is actually quite complicated, especially if you're talking about multiple states, multiple systems. There's the VAM system, which is the federal and national system, which should be helpful. But we have First Vitals that we work with here. It'll be great to have our own people have this because these are the individuals that are going to be traveling to the mainland to see their parents and grandparents and do business and then come back. We want that to be seamless. But also the five, six, seven million travelers, which are going to start coming back to Hawaii for vacations again, we need to to get this together. Now, if you just ask me, is it sufficient to show a card with a signature? Yeah, it would be good. And we will inform people that if they break the rules, they'll be subject to to a misdemeanor, which is up to $5,000 fine and a year in jail. Very few people will do that. But even so, backing up with technology is good for convenience. And so we're working on this. And it's not just this little company here in Hawaii. It's also some of these national folks. I think they're called Common Pass, Verify, and others, Clear. They're doing a lot of good work. So technically, yes, it's a challenge. Practically, it's not that big a deal. And we should be ahead of everyone. They're doing it in Israel. They're doing it in Iceland. They're now doing it all across Europe. And there is pressure on the federal government to get it done by June 1st. So I'm hopeful that this can happen. Either way, we should prepare ourselves to have more travelers who are vaccinated and therefore safe. 
But meanwhile, I want to get all of our own people vaccinated, preferably by the end of May. You know, we get through most people. And then by July 1st, there should be no reason that we haven't vaccinated everybody who wants it, which means that people ask when things are going to be normal. They won't be totally normal, but we will be one heck of a lot safer by July 4th weekend. So getting back to those vaccines, right now we're in the 1C category, the priority being given to hotel workers in the different categories, you know, because the tourists are coming back and, uh, you know, the hoteliers want the workers to report to work as more of these hotel rooms uh, are filled. That's right. So, and if I may amend just slightly, priority still is the 65 and older individuals at the top of the 1C category. But yes, as businesses go the hotel workers, the restaurants, and the bars, because that's where spread will occur if there's any spread. And we want to get uh, car manufacturers done, and we want to get uh, hairdressers done, and we want to get everybody vaccinated in these, in these front-facing businesses where they have risk of catching it. But the highest risk will be at hotels and at restaurants once we start seeing a lot more travelers. And as you started off talking about, uh, we have seen more travelers in the last week because of spring break. So we were used to getting about 12,000 or maybe 13,000 people traveling in a day. That had been the reset uh, baseline. And now it was 20,000 travelers a day this last week. So things are still fine. We're actually better as far as positivity rate than any other country, any other state in the whole country. But we don't want to let this ever get away from us. You know, we're, we're doing two things at the same time. We're vaccinating our people to be safe, and we're restoring hope with our economy and they cross over and touch one another quite a lot every day. And so what about testing? How does that fit in? Still the same. We still want to be testing. We're testing an average of 5,000 people a day still, and it was an excellent process. They did a great job on Big Island testing upon arrival. That will be replaced by the vaccination passport. That's much more relevant going forward. We still want to be testing within our communities, though, because, as you know, there is still some community spread. We're seeing a bit of a hot spot on Maui right now, their average has been 25 cases per day over the last seven days, which, just so people know, was exactly their average right after Christmas, New Year's. They have the same average as they did then, but that was a small surge, and they've had a similar surge here uh, this last few weeks. And it's being reflected in the hospitals. There's more patients in Maui in the hospital than there is in the rest of the state. So we have to have that, that fire kind of die out, but testing is valuable in these settings. But mass testing is not necessary any longer. The most important thing to do is wear a mask and socially distance and get vaccinated. You do those three things, this all ends. And so that's where I'm focusing my attention. And I'm just excited every week to be able to announce about another 100,000 shots have been given. Makes a big difference month over month. We did see the uh, vaccination rolled out for our teachers. And that's been a big deal as we try and get the kids all back into the classroom. Uh, private schools, I know, have been uh, face-to-face ahead of the, the curve, you know, compared to the public schools, just because, sure. of you know, their numbers are smaller. And then we saw the CDC guidelines come out about the three-feet spacing versus the six-feet spacing. You know, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, my thoughts are this, this has been a process I've never seen before. Uh, there's policy being made in real time, and that is a challenge. But it was shown that there was less transmission of the virus in schools rather than out of schools for kids. Therefore, they were able to move into schools with a three feet distance. The main thing for me was to make sure our educators were vaccinated because I didn't want a 55-year-old school teacher in, in you know, Mililani getting infected. That was dangerous for me. I didn't want to see that happen across our state. So we got our educators vaccinated so they're safe. There will be some cases in schools between our keiki, but it's not that uh, worrisome. We sent our, our 10-year-old Sammy back to the public school uh, 10 days ago. It's been great, thank goodness. Uh, but Maya, who was at a private school or is at a private school, went back all the way in September. And that was an incredible benefit for her. So everyone should be able to have these opportunities to be in, in the classroom. But, yeah, it's safe. It's as long as it's... Uh, as long as we prioritize our educators and keep them safe, I don't worry too much. And we have to get every, every kid back to school. We certainly have to do what we can now to save the fourth quarter of, of, of school. Uh, that starts, I believe, in about a week after spring break. Get them back in the classrooms, most of them, most of the kids, and then absolutely have a good summer school uh, process. And the fall should be normal. We shouldn't have any hesitation about having our kids in school full-time anywhere in the state. That's very important because children and their development 
doesn't get to be redone. You don't get a second chance at development for kids. So a seven-year-old who didn't have time with his favorite or her favorite teacher missed out on a lot of growth, and we can't have another year go by. We talked to two private schools who have actually started uh, on-campus testing. Uh, Kamehameha Schools, I believe, was the first. Uh, Iolani is also doing that. They're doing a spit test, uh, I think, uh, or an antigen test. So obviously they have the resources. They've got smaller numbers on their campuses, but they've been able to manage and, and keep the the numbers down they have and they've done a great job with it really most of their success is because they mask up religiously and on iolani's campus where my daughter goes it's unbelievable it's like it's like they do at the pentagon it's amazing how much tracking and how much discipline they have to keep the spread from occurring but being able to back it up with a test so that they don't see a hot spot form is really valuable and dr miskovich did a great job with that in different places across the state you know, the State Department of Health has been doing a lot of testing, of course, thousands of tests every day. It's been working. It's just that people have to get used to a different process. And getting used to new things is difficult, especially in a short time frame. But we have no choice. We have to absolutely open our schools. We have to open our businesses. So we have to have the vaccine passport so the state is safe and open. We have to have testing when needed. We had all those extra free tests at the schools. And this, this time next year, people will begin to forget about COVID. It's actually hard to believe, but it will be the case. That's what's always happened. But we still don't want to see another summer like we did before. I mean, summer was our worst time. We let down our guard, we saw a big surge, and we paid for it at the end of August and September with significant uh, hospitalizations and loss of life. This time around, we shouldn't have that same process because we'll have a million shots already delivered, actually more than that by July, by July 1st, 1.5 million shots. But you could still see some outbreaks if a variant is here, if we are really silly and we don't wear masks at all. So this is the time to kind of double down on safety and get vaccinated. Then we can restore just what we we loved about Hawaii, which was being together with our families and friends. And part of that is uh, sports. (laughs) You know, here in Honolulu, right, the the rules have relaxed a bit more, so we can have uh, more uh, athletics Uh, for our young people we can and we should it's funny because i was an athlete during high school and i remember how important that was not not because i ended up on a scholarship or anything like that but because that is part of life when you're 17 and 16 years old it's it's critical so it's like losing uh, the opportunity to have a first birthday it's a milestone in life losing a, a spring season for a team is a milestone in life and some of these things were sacrificed for the good of many but we also have to realize that we can't keep missing these, these life opportunities, can't keep putting weddings off. Um, my goodness, funerals, that was a huge challenge. So all of these things have to be restored, and sports are right there in the middle of it. My team worked quite closely uh, with um, Mr. Amamiya and the mayor and you know a lot of the smaller uh, organizations that wanted to institute some testing protocols, and they're able to do it now. Frankly, sports are not a big concern, and among adolescents, I'm not worried because the disease itself is not very severe. I would worry more if we were seeing opening of events that affected our kupuna. That we don't want to do. So we don't want to uh, test fate by having you know, large gatherings of our kupuna. Even though they're now vaccinated, an unlucky outbreak there would be more consequential. But an outbreak, if it occurred and it shouldn't, in a sporting team would really not hurt anybody. And, you know, are you concerned at all just with the timing of ring break and, you know, the opening of bars uh, as far as the transmission? Yeah. Yeah, I am. I mean, I I realize that we really hurt that industry incredibly, and I, and I feel for them. And I actually kind of fought behind the scenes to have some sensible plans for bars, mainly that we pay their overhead. If you're going to shut down any industry, you should pay their overhead, their costs. We should give them tax breaks for their liquor licenses and everything else associated with their losses. So that has to be sorted out. Uh, However, all of society can't be risked based on one or two industries. And so uh, we have to really just strike a balance. But, yeah, bar goers, if they're traveling, bar hopping, they could spread the disease. Usually visitors don't tend to mingle with local residents very much, but there is some of that, and we have to be careful. Now, keep in mind, if people got here for spring break, they had to be tested. They got a test within 72 hours. They are negative. But 
you know, nothing's perfect. So uh, I'm watching it closely every day, six, eight times a day. I'm checking the numbers, making sure that our hospitals are okay and that our counts aren't surging. If we see a big surge, we'll pull back. If we keep it fairly steady, we'll just keep vaccinating until we're safe. All right. Well, Lieutenant Governor Josh Green, thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And still to come, we talk to Big Island Mayor Mitch Roth and Honolulu Police Department Police Chief Susan Ballard. Support for HPR comes from Hawaii Office Centers in Honolulu, dedicated to providing safe and productive office options with dedicated desks, private office spaces, and virtual office services. More about HOC at hawaiioffice-centers.com. Sixty years ago, Hanoi and Washington were bitter enemies. Now the U.S. is supplying Vietnam with drones, radar equipment, and warships. There is now increasing level of mutual trust between the two former enemies. Mutual trust as the two countries cooperate in a maritime dispute against China. The U.S. and Vietnam working together in the South China Sea. It's on the world. Beginning this afternoon at 1. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, featuring island-style lunch at the open-air Homa Cafe and galleries and courtyards open during extended weekend evening hours. Admission tickets at honolulumuseum.org. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Time for your trivia test on our Backyard Quiz. As we near the end of Women's History Month, we dig into Hawaii suffragette history. The United States has come a long way from Abigail Adams admonishing her husband to remember the ladies in the new republic. Since 1776, women's uh, right to vote has been lost and regained, and many modern generations take their suffrage for granted. But not that long ago, women could not universally vote. In 1920, the ratification of the 19th Amendment gave women the right. This was long after the first Women's Rights Convention in Seneca Falls, of 1848, and also after the 14th Amendment defining citizens as male, which was ratified in uh, 1868. So what did suffrage look like in the Kingdom of Hawaii? Well, there was one woman born in Hilo in 1954 who played a major role in the local movement. She had the perfect forum for her efforts. She was one of the founding members of the newspaper called The Patriot. Our question, who was this Hawaii suffragette? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689. If you know the answer, the first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nayreet Hawaii, which represents real estate businesses committed to supporting affordable housing statewide with support for nonprofits, including Hale o Hawaii on the island of Hawaii. Learn more at nayreethawaii.com. March 17th marked the first 100 days in office for Hawaii County Mayor Mitch Roth. 
We talked with him yesterday afternoon on a number of issues, including about the COVID test kits provided from the Hawaii Health Department that were being used for testing visitors at the airport. Uh, the Department of Health declined to continue providing them, saying the county had to reimburse the state for additional supplies. What we did is we were going to take kits from them to use in our airport testing. They said that we couldn't use it for our airport testing or, you know, in the community where we had a contract. And so we gave them back to the Department of Health. The county doesn't have the money to reimburse them for all those tests, right? Correct. And so just doing less testing than overall? No, we're still doing the same amount of testing. You know, one of the things that we've been very fortunate with here on the Big Island is we had some philanthropists that are, have been paying for the airport testing and ah. the, you know, a lot of the community testing as well. And so it hasn't come out of the taxpayer's uh, pocket at all. Well, that's great news. Right. And I think that was you know one of the, one of the things that, that happened. Now, moving forward in April, it looks like we'll be on the hook again for paying for the airport testing. And then the state is going to be, I understand, giving us some test kits, and, and we may have to work with a private vendor as well. But we're still going to see how it's all going to roll out. The uh, number of cases, though, seems to be uh, uh, in check, right? I mean, you've got a pretty low positivity rate. Yeah, I think, you know, Hawaii Island has been very fortunate. I think certainly in the country, we're one of the safest places. And, and certainly in the state, we're one of the safest places. You know, having that airport testing has really been a godsend for us. What's your feeling on the safe travels and, and you know, the, the inner island travel? We think that safe travels has been, been working, but moving forward as, you know, we see the numbers decline as we look at our metrics, it's very possible to open up the, the state between islands. But, you know, we're going to continue to watch some of the metrics. And for me, some of the bigger metrics are, you know, how many cases we're having, how many people we have in our hospitals. I think today we have one person in the hospital, which is a, an, an amazing number, and we have zero people in our ICU. So as long as we can continue on that course, you know, we can open things up a little bit more, possibly inner island. But we, we also have to be cognizant of what's happening throughout the country and throughout the world. You know, right now, we're seeing large numbers in other places, and you know the numbers are starting to climb. We've climbed a little bit in Hawaii, but we still feel where we're at a safe level right now. And how are you folks doing with visitors during spring break? My understanding, we, we got a uh, briefing from John DeFries from the Hawaii Tourism Authority today, and uh, I believe our hotels are about 47 48% filled right now, so not anywhere where we were in 2018, 19, or before. But I think our island is faring pretty well compared to the other islands. I think we have more more people in our hotels or more occupancy than, than the other islands at this time. And a number of your uh, hotel workers were able to get vaccinated. That's a big relief, I think, to uh, the workers and management. A absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, we're seeing our vaccinations, the job that the Department of Health and our Hila Hospital and the Kona Hospital and everybody's doing, we're getting the, the vaccinations out and uh, they're doing a great job. There's talk about a vaccine card or a vaccine passport. Um, what are your thoughts on that? I like the idea of a vaccination passport. I know that the, the governor is looking to see if there's more um, data that they can get and you know we'll wait to see that and you know that's the decision. I think we'll, we'll be fine with it. And then you just recently held a sustainability conference. You know, one of the, my campaign promises to get it done within a, 100 days, and I think we finished on day 88. And so what was the takeaway? We had over 2,300 people sign up, and it was online. We have it on Naleo TV, and I believe that we've had over 4,000 people who viewed it. I think the big takeaway is, is that our community is ready to start, you know, being a little bit more sustainable. And, you know, for me, Sustainability means the ability to keep our kids here and allow them to raise their children here. So a lot of that has to do with jobs, with you know, our environment, with our food, with our energy, you know, with sustainable tourism. So I, I thought it was a, a great summit. Uh, I, I get credit, but it was really my, my team, my staff and the team that put it on that did, did an amazing job. Started off as a, you know, a local kind of sustainability summit and became a, a world-class event with prime ministers from 
Curacao, the governor from Guam. It was really quite impressive, and and to hear the voices of our community uh, was just awe-inspiring. You know, I was just recently talking with folks over at the Natural Energy Lab, Mm -hmm. and I know they just came out with an announcement about uh, some new project with Korea, I think a $2 million uh, uh, grant having to do with AI, artificial intelligence, and solar panels. And the last story we did with uh, Nelha is that there was some company that was using solar heat to manufacture plastic tanks to be used for water catchment systems or septic tanks, you know, as people move off of cesspools, which I thought was a great idea because, you know, if these things are manufactured right there on the Big Island, and the Big Island, I think, has a lot of cesspools that they're trying to convert. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on that? All of that stuff it is great. It brings us jobs and you know, uh, as far as converting our plastics into to septic tanks, I, I think that's, you know, it's an amazing idea. I, I, I saw some presentations on that. But, you know, you, you mentioned something else about AI being an artificial intelligence. One of our keynote speakers, actually John DeFries, who I mentioned earlier, talked about AI, and he, he framed it in the Aloha Intelligence and the ability to, you know, share our aloha with the rest of the world, become a, a classroom for the rest of the world on, on how to do things right. And I think we really have that that opportunity here on Hawaii, whether we're, you know, talking about, you know, septic tanks or, or bigger ideas, we can really be the classroom for the rest of the world here. Well, you know, you do have uh, the telescopes there on Mauna Kea, and I know that's an issue that still needs to be worked out with the community uh, you know, there's discussions about new management uh, groups uh, taking over. I don't know. Where, where do you sit on that, and, and uh, you know, what's the latest? You know, there's still a lot of uh, conversations that are being had, and I think really we as a county, the state as a state, needs to have those conversations with our community. I, I think one of the things that we learned, you know, from the Sustainability Summit is how important it really is to give the community a voice and, you know, to be heard. I personally support, you know, the idea of the, the telescopes on our island and astronomy in, in, uh, in that. And for me, as I look at sustainability, I think about the ability to keep our kids here. And the telescopes and the STEM industries, as you talk about the other things that Nelha is doing, those are really the future for our kids. You know, rather than just looking at tourism, which is going to be there, I think we have to diversify and think about other kinds of things. And so the, the telescopes, I think, are important, but I think we have to have some some real hard discussions and, you know, take responsibility for things that went wrong in the past. Well, you know, last year we did talk to two of the Nobel Prize winners, right, uh, that had ties to the Big Island, Jennifer Doudna from Hilo, uh, Hilo High, I think, and uh, I think she went to St. Joseph's, and then uh, Andrea Getz, who's doing all the uh, work on the telescope there, uh, at Waimea. I mean, just remarkable role models for our young people. Yeah, and that's, you know, that's another thing that astronomy gives to us. We, you know, we have a, a STEM program. We have a bunch of STEM programs, but I was involved with a STEM program where we had a lot of mentors. And one of our mentors was Doug Simons of Canada France Telescope. And, you know, thinking that having a person like Doug Simons mentoring your kid in astronomy is kind of like having Tiger Woods mentor your kid in golf. It, it, you know, that that doesn't happen in a lot of places. And we have to take a look at those opportunities that we have and, and capitalize on, on those things. And the mountain gives us some of those great opportunities. Yeah, STEM, that, that's a, a key part of our future, I think. You know, when we see what Jennifer Downer did with uh, gene editing and, and just uh, – Amazing what can come out of the Big Island. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> we were very fortunate to live here, and uh, we have some great resources. You know, I just really feel blessed to have the, the amazing team that I have. We made a bunch of promises, and I think we came through on pretty much all of our, our 100-day promises that we made. We're, we're making uh, terrific strides in changing our permitting process. Like I said, we had the Sustainability Summit. And, you know, I just see a lot of really positive changes happening here on the Big Island. And I'm blessed to have my team, and I'm blessed to live in a community that cares as much as they do. And, you know, whether it's taking care of each other by wearing their masks, socially distancing, and, 
you know, getting vaccinated or it's, you know, playing a role in making changes for the future for our keiki. I, I just feel incredibly blessed to be in this position representing an amazing group of people on the Big Island. And then is there anything on the vaccine front that uh, you want to share? Like I said earlier, the Department of Health, Hilo Hospital, they've been doing a great job. We've been working together with them. We're, uh, I believe, sitting at 22% of our population. Of course, if, if we had more vaccines, you know, where everybody in the state is sitting, if they had more vaccines, it, it would be nice. But uh, for what we've got, um, the Department of Health, Hilo Hospital, our um, other volunteers, they've been doing a great job of getting the vaccinations out. I got mine last week. Uh, you know, I feel that it's my kuleana. It's just as it should be everybody's kuleana to make sure that they get vaccinated. Because the sooner we get, uh, you know, to herd immunity, the sooner we can get to back to somewhat of a normal. Yeah, and I, I did see that the Yukio Kutsu home is uh, starting to get new patients in. So that's certainly a, a relief from, you know, what we saw early on in the pandemic. Yeah, you know, Hawaii Island, we've been really blessed. We've, like I said, our, our hospital numbers have been really low. Um, our deaths, you know, we haven't had any deaths, I believe, in maybe 12 weeks now, 11, 12 weeks. Don't want to jinx anything, but um, there's a lot of people that are doing a lot of things right now. And a lot of that is the community that's really taking responsibility and, and doing what they need to do to step up and you know, keep our community safe and healthy. That was Hawaii County Mayor Mitch Roth talking to us from the Big Island about his first 100 days in office. Civil Beats Reality Check today looks at the de- pending departure of School Superintendent Christina Kishimoto. Education reporter Suban Lee joins us today. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. So your article really kind of looks back over the last four years, right? I mean, people might be saying, oh, Christina leaving, you know, is she a COVID casualty? Right, right. Yeah, so Christina Kishimoto is the Hawaii school superintendent who came here and started her job in August 2017. So this is her fourth year um, in the role, but she stepped down, decided to step down come July 30th, which is, of course, when her contract would have been um, renewed or not renewed. So before the board could vote on that matter, she decided to announce her departure. And your article actually steps back and and looks at you know, when times were better and, and she got along better with the teachers union. Yes, I think that a lot of people were questioning kind of what her prospects were for getting renewed. And so, right, the story did try to look back at what her legacy here was and whether um, opposition from powerful groups like the Hawaii State Teachers Association, the teachers union, contributed to her decision to step down before this protracted fight um, that people were expecting before the Board of Ed, which is the body that's responsible for voting to renew her or not. And so um, I try to look back at sort of what people were saying about her overall um, performance here in Hawaii. Did she do a good job leading the statewide school system? Um, Was it just the pandemic that kind of caused things to topple over and sort of spell some disaster for her this year? Because admittedly, a lot of people were very dissatisfied with her pandemic response, such as a lack of a clear communication plan, lack of uh, clear directions to school leaders, communication to families even. So um, I think even though this year people look back and saw this as kind of a disastrous year for DOE leadership, what were the previous years like for her? Um, And based on the people I spoke to, a lot of education insiders and advocates, the trouble was kind of already starting before the pandemic. 
um, as far as some of the dissatisfaction when it came to her leadership. And I think when we last talked earlier this month, uh, you had a story about how it was the uh, uh, Hawaii Government Employees Association, um, right? The uh, union that represents principals that also uh, gave her a thumbs down. Uh, that's right. The, uh, the the teachers union was not the only union who spoke out about this uh, pending contract renewal. The Hawaii um, Unit 6 of the Hawaii Government Employees Association, the group that represents principals and vice principals, also very publicly testified um, um, against renewing her. So that was an unusual wrinkle to this whole saga because, as many people know, principals are not likely a group to speak out, especially in such a public manner. And so when the board of directors of Unit 6 wrote a letter to the Board of Ed and gave interviews about their um, their strong opposition to renewing Kishimoto, that was kind of a very telling um, development in this whole uh, conversation about whether she was doing a good job. And the principals were saying they felt she was not giving a clear communication plan to them regarding school reopenings, that there was muddled communication coming down from the department. And so they were pretty distressed by that in what is already a stressful time. Yeah, you know, and I think just with everything that's going on, communication is key, whether you're with the labor department or the health department or the Department of Education. Uh, you know, that's the one thing. The messaging has got to be clear so people know, you know, are we all on the same page? Right, right. And when it came to the Board of Education um, members, they were also citing um, some some aspects of her leadership before the pandemic when it came to not having enough time to vote on certain matters. So, for instance, the DOE would give the Board of Ed um, little lead time in discussing matters. For instance, the new 10-year strategic plan known as the Promise Plan, um, for those familiar with it, they were given very little time to discuss it as a board and then vote on it. So the DOE didn't give them much time to look it over before they had to vote to approve it or not. And to this day, it's not quite finalized because it hasn't been approved by the board because they had to defer the vote. So some board members even were saying that Aside from the communication and sort of the confusing signals this year, um, they just didn't have enough advance notice about certain um, decisions that they had to um, vote on. Yeah, so uh, I know, you know, uh, July will come quickly and, uh, you know, they will have to find a replacement for her. And But I, I, we were talking earlier and you mentioned that uh, the teachers union will also see new leadership as well. That's right. So currently, the HSTA is um, the president is Corey Rosenlee, but he, um, um, I, I believe, is being term limited out. So there is a new president elect, and he will be um, sort of taking the reins of the HSTA soon. I believe sometime this summer. So not only will we have a new um, superintendent or interim superintendent, I believe, for now, once Kishimoto's um, leaves on July 30th, we'll have a new HSTA leader soon enough as well. Okay, new players. Thanks so much, Suvon. Thanks for having me. That was Honolulu Civil Beat education reporter Suvon Lee with today's Reality Check. Read her story online at civilbeat.org. You know, this morning, the Honolulu City Council was to take up a resolution asking for a performance audit for the Honolulu Police Department. We learned late Friday afternoon that Honolulu Police Chief Susan Ballard would make herself available to media yesterday. She spoke with reporters separately for 10-minute blocks. We talked to her yesterday afternoon. The first thing on our list was clarifying the situation about the overtime issue that led to the disbanding of the COVID Enforcement Special Unit. The second was on the justification of the equipment purchases under the CARES Act. Here's what the chief had to say. All but the four of the officers, they worked every bit of the overtime. None of it was not work. And for the four officers, we're only talking about between the four of them, six hours. So in an abundance of caution, you know, even when we when we found out that this had happened, we did not, um, it, all that came out of the, their entire shift, even though, 
some of the shift, most of the shift was work, but as an abundance of caution, we made sure that, you know, HPD just paid that over time. So there's really no, nothing, nothing to return. Okay. But the excess, I mean, it, what, two officers logged 300 hours or more? I mean, is that right? Right. But they did. We very, and that's why it took so long as we pulled timesheets. We pulled their overtime cards. We checked special duty. We checked everything. It was a very thorough investigation, and it was determined that all of those officers worked every single hour that they put in for. So there's no money to return to taxpayers? No, no. Uh, the, the six hours that was not worked by those four officers was already paid um, the by HPD. Okay. And then just as far as, as going forward, though, uh, you know, I think there's concern when you see those amounts because that will affect what the ERS pays out when these officers retire. So is somebody now watching to make sure that, you know, it doesn't uh, go over like this? Well, you know, with the ERS, and I think a lot of people don't understand, is that, you know, those officers who are what we call the high earners or they're high three, fact is, is that a lot of that overtime is not HPD overtime. So we really don't have uh, that much control over it. Um, we do limit, like for special duty, um, if they work for another city and county agency, then they get overtime. If they work um, like a grant type of uh, uh, job, then that's overtime. Um, but, you know, it's not like staff short. It's not in furtherance of uh, regular HPD duties. One of the things that we are trying to look at right now, you know, we're working with the city is to try at looking another way of paying the officer like a flat rate versus overtime so that it would not affect ERS. This has been a problem that's been going on for quite a while. This administration has agreed to try and work with us uh, to, you know, to resolve that, you know, that, that, you know, resolve that issue. So, um, you know, we're just, and then the other thing is, is that now, course the officers i think it's like eight years that have eight years and less they're under a different system so that any overtime that they work does not go towards a retirement system they just get paid for the overtime and then retirement is only based on their high five years uh, base salary but getting back to the overtime issue, so how is that uh, getting resolved? Obviously, you disbanded that COVID special unit. Well, for special duty, they have limited hours that they can work. And then also for grant overtime, they have limited hours that they can work. So, you know, that's what we've got right now. And hopefully, like I said, when we, you know, with, with this administration, that we can work with them. And instead of paying overtime, it'll be a flat rate. Uh, that the officer would get paid versus overtime, which would not affect the retirement system. Does that have to be negotiated with the union? Um, that because it's a grant overtime, it's volunteer. Um, it's not uh, uh, conditions of employment because this would be all the extra volunteer. So, the, the, like when we get grants for seatbelt enforcement, speed enforcement, um, that type of thing. So. And my and my understanding that it would not be negotiable because it is a voluntary overtime and it's not part of, you know, their their standard work shift. So is it administrative rules or does it require a change in the law? Um, no, I. As far as the, we understand from the grant folks that we they give us the money and how we get to the officers is us up to us. But the roadblock. From before, even when I first came in, I tried to change it, was that the system could not be changed to pay a flat type of rate. So, with the, like I said, with this new administration, they're going to be taking a look to see if, you know, we can we can change that. And what can you uh, tell taxpayers about the, the CARES money spending? We understand that there's a Treasury division that's looking at uh, where the, those monies went. Okay, so... First, we've never been contacted by anybody in the federal government, only the city asking for the paperwork that we had, you know, that we submitted to budget and fiscal that was approved by them. And then they added asked some additional questions justifying the purchase. So 
uh, we have sent them all that information. And what I like to remind people is that when we started these purchases, it was at the beginning of this, and nobody knew how long it was going to last, how severe it was going to be. I mean, at that point, you could touch things and get this uh, deadly virus, you know, and so we purchased things that we felt that we're going, we were going to need to carry us through. And one thing about the police is that we always plan for the, or we hope for the best, but we plan for the worst. But in my opinion, I really, after looking at, you know, all the justifications that um, there was justification for each of the purchases that we had, and it was all contributed to COVID. And so when you say it was the city that requested this information, do you know if that request was, you know, by the Fed? I, I, I'm not privy to any of that information. Only the city would have that information. Okay. And you believe that, that uh, the department was justified in, in everything from the trucks to the robotic dog? Yes. I mean, you know, people, you know, for that robotic dog, it actually has, uh, we can have, you know, basically it's non-contact with the folks out at post. So we do have COVID-positive people out there. That way we can, you know, the, the, the robotic dog can have, you know, uh, face-to-faces with them without having to put, you know, the officers or the uh, workers that we have out there in jeopardy as well as, you know, doctor's appointments. They can, we can actually have virtual doctor's appointments, um, you know, with the folks that are out there. So, you know, all these things and understanding, once again, that at the beginning of this, like with all the cars, we thought, or the trucks, we thought we were going to need, I mean, we were using them to transport people. We were using them, you know, to help out with the uh, surge testing, with the, um, you know, with quarantine issues. And at the point when we got them, we also thought that at that time that you had to decontaminate everything every time you use them. So based on the justification and information we had, I believe that all of our purchases were justified. Do you think we'll have to return anything? Uh, in my, From what I've seen, I don't know what, you know what's going to come out of it, but I feel comfortable that, you know, we bought what we did and we had justification because of COVID for what we got. You know, Catherine, for all of the COVID, the the biggest challenge for us has just been the constant changing and, you know, and making sure that the people out there, the community knows, you know, what the next steps are. And so, you know, it's an education thing. And, you know, we're, we're really stuck in the middle. You've got the people who want us to go out and just slam everybody for everything. And then, but you know, the other time, you know, the, the people who are doing these violations, they're not criminals. They're, you know, they're just people who might not, you know, have the right information. Um, so that's the hardest part is that, you know, the officers are getting stuck in the middle and they're doing the best that they can, you know. And obviously now um, that we're not in shutdown, our direction is, you know, more education and trying to get them, you know, voluntary compliance. That was HPD Chief Susan Ballard. Uh, She talked with us yesterday afternoon. You know, we reached out to the city about clarification on which federal agency triggered the uh, record request. We were told that it was the Treasury and the Inspector General. We plan to hear more tomorrow about the Waikiki Safety Conference that was held last week. Uh, The number of tourists is starting to bounce back during spring break. Will we see crime start to creep up as well? Last August, the 19th Amendment celebrated its 100th anniversary. Back in 1920, the right to vote was also extended to American women in the territory of Hawaii. But even before that, when Hawaii was a kingdom, there was a woman helping to fight for women's suffrage. She'd grown up with a strong sense of Hawaiian tradition and culture and had become one of Queen Liliuokalani's advisors. After the monarchy was overthrown in 1893, this activist and her husband showed their opposition to the New Republic of Hawaii by founding the publication Ke Aloha Aina, The Patriot. The newspaper was used to promote the return of Hawaiian sovereignty. Until her death in 1935, our mystery suffragette remained active in political, church, community, and women's groups. So the next time you're filling in your election ballot, you can thank 
Emma Navahi for making sure you have the right to do so. And congratulations to our winner, Paul James Brown of Pukalani, Maui. He got it right, and he shared with us that he's happy to win because his uh, backyard quiz tote was stolen, so he needed to replace it. Well, congrats, Paul James Brown. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And congratulations to our winner, Paul James Brown of Pukalani, Maui. He got it right, and he shared with us that he's happy to win because his uh, backyard quiz tote was stolen, so he needed to replace it. Well, thank you, Paul James Brown. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Dr. David Hiranaka and the aesthetics team on Hawaii Island for more than 25 years providing eyelid, facelift, and rhinoplasty surgery online at a-new-face.com. When you listen to HPR, there's a sense that we're moving forward together. That's how public radio works. We give you the news and ideas you need to make sense of the world around you and the ability to make decisions about what's next. Step by step, day by day, the partnership that unites us moves us all forward. As we approach our spring fund drive, help us in that shared mission. Become a new sustaining member at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Merriman's Restaurants on Oahu, Maui, Hawaii Island, and Kauai. Details and reservations at merrimanshawaii.com, Facebook, and Instagram. And finally, you know, this month we've been asking you to share your memories of last feeling normal before the pandemic. Here's Rosemary Casey from Oahu. I just remember the ease of shopping. I remember being able to go into Long's Drug and just be there, you know, when lots of people were there. I bought a plant on the 19th of March. You know, it's a shamrock plant and I'm Irish and, and I watched it throughout the pandemic and it recently passed away my little plant. Ah, well, that's a wrap for today. Tomorrow we hear more about the efforts to eliminate the tobacco special fund as lawmakers look to raid those bank accounts during these tough economic times. Call our talkback line, leave us your feedback, your last memory, 808-792-8217. You can also email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.